university professors spend a lot of time talking to each other about popular culture in academic journals and at academic conferences. The problem with that is you don't go to academic conferences and you don't read academic journals and I want to talk to you. Some of the most brilliant thoughts in America about popular culture never get to be heard, and I'm on a mission to change that. Brilliant people, fascinating conversations. I'm Dr. Christopher Bell, and this is a hard hat area. You're on with the Deconstruction Workers. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever it is you are. This is Dr. Christopher Bell. You are on the Deconstruction Workers podcast. And welcome to part two of our roundtable discussion on teaching popular culture during a global pandemic. Because this is a part two of a longer conversation, today's episode is going to be a little bit shorter than it normally would be. We'll be back to our normal hour-long episodes with episode three. This week, I am joined by Jonathan Alexandrados and Dr. Shannon Sindorf and Natalie Shepard-Bodine and Jen Zuko, and we are kicking around how we engage with our students during this time where everyone's all spread out and things are really kind of out of control globally. And we are in the middle of a discussion, so if you missed season four, episode one, you're probably going to want to go back and catch that so that you get caught up to the conversation that we're currently having. And when we last left off, we were talking about the ethics of how much we can reasonably expect our popular culture students to consume during this time, especially given the fact that not everyone has a Hulu account or a Netflix account or Disney Plus or something like that. How much can we put on our students and whether or not it's ethical to assign a whole bunch of pop culture consumption at this time? It also raises an interesting question of how much online participation can we reasonably expect from students who did not sign up for an online class, right? Right. Yeah. That's not so much a problem I have now, but in the past I've adjuncted at community college and I know Jonathan, you're at a community college now, and a lot of those students in particular feel extraordinarily disadvantaged in this situation. Yep, definitely. And I mean, so much so that our college is purchasing laptops for them. That's something that they've invested in. But yeah, that's kind of why for me at a community college level where most of my students are experiencing poverty and food instability and all of the things, it's like, okay, this this is going to be in many different platforms. If you can get in on any of them, awesome. But beyond that, like I am, I am not expecting you to choose between, for instance, getting a paycheck right now and coming to this particular Blackboard Collaborate class. So are you providing alternatives for students who can't go to the collaborative? Like, how are you managing that? So every single one of our Blackboard Collaborate discussions is recorded. So those are available to students who miss out. Plus the Blackboard course documents page that I have has every single worksheet and reading right there for them to access on a day-by-day basis. So whatever we talk about is right there available for them, along with what they're supposed to do with it. Plus I follow up by email, plus I make YouTube videos that always kind of live on YouTube. So hopefully through one of those ways, 
they can kind of see what we did that day and catch up with it. Hmm. Do you find that their access to internet in, in particular is limited or does that, is that a factor for you? Sometimes it is for no, me, but not Yeah, always. so far it's been okay, largely thanks to, uh, honestly, like as much as I hate to praise T-Mobile for anything, they've given free data upgrades so that you have unlimited data and stuff like that. So they can access it on their phone, which is what a lot of them do. And mm-hmm. all of the, the work can be easily submitted by like just typing it into an email or something like that if it comes down to that. So because of that, there hasn't been been the same level of accessibility once you have the basic technology, which most of them do. And for the ones who don't, we're trying to get it for them. I've been pretty fortunate in that because I am teaching two writing classes, which are the only ones that I'm doing synchronously, everything else is asynchronous. So because I'm teaching two writing classes, two screenwriting classes, all of those students have laptops. Um, because they're all writers. So I I dodged a pretty big bullet there. But the fortunate thing is that all of them seem to have either found internet or had internet access at home. So I did have one student who logged in to class from her car, which was parked in the Starbucks parking lot. Nice. Commitment. Well, these are screenwriting kids and they're starving artists, you know, living the dream. So, (laughs) but aside from that one student who had to, and she said, she said to us, it's not that I don't have internet in my apartment. It's that there's four of us trying to all do class at the same time. Mm -hmm. So I just needed to get out of my house. (laughs) So even then she would have had internet at home if she had to, to do it. So... There I've been lucky, but I do sort of contemplate this. Yeah. I, I have one I have one student who did show up for class, but he is also the primary caregiver for his son who is an infant and was hospitalized for a long time and is now home. Um so his son was born with some some genetic something that, you know, his lungs weren't working properly. And so he's at home. And he's immunocompromised. And, you know, my student was like, even if we were in person in class, I still wouldn't be coming to class right now Mm -hmm. because my son is immunocompromised and I'm not go, I'm not leaving this house, Mm -hmm. you know, because I don't want to bring anything back to him. So I'm very cognizant of all the different ways in which my students are trying to make it work. Yeah, I think one of the good things that might come out of this is everyone's going to be able to make their classes more accessible to students who maybe have issues like this when there's not a pandemic going on. Students who are disabled or in other ways who can't just come to class. Exactly, yeah. If we can extrapolate a silver lining in there, that's probably it. Yeah. I'm curious how y'all's universities are responding to this, because I know we've gotten a ton of emails about all kinds of webinars and software that we can download and things of that nature, but we're also getting barraged with emails uh, about keeping everything just as low tech as possible for students. How much can I say and not get fired? Let's see. (laughs) That's exactly, I had exactly the same thought. I had exactly the same thought. I'm hesitant to chime in here. I'm always curious about the gulf between the people actually (laughs) teaching and administrative staff. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, I'll say this. Our specific department is fantastic. We have an mm-hmm. awesome program director who is literally on top of everything in an ex- in a, in a very common sense way. So mm-hmm. I've been extremely thankful for that. Her leadership basically has prevented a lot of that was tumbling downhill to make it all the way downhill. And I'm incredibly grateful for that. The stuff that is kind of going on above her, once you get way, way, way up top, where they're doing things like telling students that they don't have class tomorrow via a tweet that was then trickled down and somehow made it into the system, that is bad. Like, that's the stuff that I'm, 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 that's really upsetting to me. The Ugh. stuff where just now we learned from way, way, way up top, way outside of our department or even outside of our, our specific college, that students might not have class on Friday, but we don't know. So it's like, could we maybe not be so vague about this? But uh, so that's the kind of frustration that I'm in the midst of. So as the one person of the five of us who has tenure, I'm perfectly willing to talk about how my university is. Oh, there you things. go. Okay. <laughs> you go, girl. Um, and I bet it, it's, it's probably similar to mine because I teach for two different universities in the CU system also. I can tell you our response has been categorically better than the other schools in the CU system. And the reason for that is twofold. Number one, the short answer reason for that is my wife is an assistant vice chancellor and has been in on all of the meetings. And she's better at planning things than any single human being I've ever met in my entire life. But the second and the bigger, the, the bigger sort of actual reason is because our university has just made the commitment that we are putting the students first period what's what's good for the students is what we are doing and so we are giving students as many options as we can in order to maximize their experiences the problem with this is that we are not the quote-unquote flagship campus And because we are not the quote-unquote flagship campus, we a lot of times end up having to do things we weren't going to do because Boulder has already done them. And now Boulder doesn't want to look bad for having done the things it's done. So now all the other schools have to hurry up and do the things that Boulder did. Mm. And so one of the ways that we are getting around this is by taking whatever mandate it is from the regents because Boulder did a thing and parsing it, figuring out how to do it in a way that still benefits our students. If it's one thing that I can say unequivocally about our administration right now, it's that they are doing the best that they can for students. And that's, that's the best that anyone can hope for in this situation. I agree. <laughs> Fair. I mean, it, as, as much fun as it would be to jump on and be like, oh, this is all terrible and everyone's doing a terrible job at it and blah, blah, blah. Truth is, I don't feel that way. Yeah. I feel like our university has done a really good job. And I also feel like our university has done a good job in spite of quite a few faculty members on our campus who seem very determined to just make things harder all the time. For example, the university chancellor had to send 
our police department to the engineering building to force engineering professors to stop holding classes when we were on a campus-wide oh, shutdown. God. Yikes. Because the engineering professors were like, you babies need to still come to class. Oh. And the university uh. was like, that's not how we do things. Uh. So, there, I mean, there, you know, there are faculty making it way worse on our campus than the administration could ever hope. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's really great to hear. Like that, that on the top level, it is so that it's, it's very well kind of ironed out like that. And I think that for us, the, almost the opposite is true. On the lower levels, we have, I think, a very clear plan of what we need to do. It's just that it doesn't always seem to be connecting with what's going on on the higher levels, which seems to just be vague most of the time, which mm-hmm. I think is, gets very frustrating. It's really hard to, to do all this in a, in a tweet. It's just, mm-hmm. it's 140 characters. Right. You know, it's really hard to navigate a pandemic that way. So Yeah, I mean, our university is sending out emails twice a day for the last week. So, yeah. and, I, and I know that they're meeting because, like I said, my wife has been in meetings all day, every day for the last probably eight work days, eight business days. So... They are meeting, they are discussing, they are figuring it out. They are returning money to students. Yeah. Money that, quite frankly, we don't have, that the taxpayers of Colorado are going to have to get up off of more money. We are 49th out of 50th in higher education funding, so I don't feel bad at all for telling the people in Colorado to pony up because they haven't haven't had to in at least my lifetime. So they can they can certainly afford to pony up a little bit, but they're giving back this, the money to the students in the residence halls, prorated for the rest of the year because they can't live in anymore. Mm-hmm. They're giving students their money back for their for their meal plans because they're all living at home now. They're they're giving students their parking fees back for the rest of the semester because they because they aren't living on campus, so they're not parking on campus. I mean, the university is is going out of its way. Now, that said, that's probably going to, you know, put us in the hole by $10 million and we ain't got it. So the the state's going to have to get up off of it. But at this point, the government's handing out money like candy because it has to, because otherwise everything's going to shut down. So Mm -hmm. put that on the tab. Yeah. Yeah, that was one of the major concerns my students had the last time we met that I could not make them feel better about, you know, I can make them feel better about this class that they're in right now, but they were also very concerned that they weren't going to have a place to live, that they weren't going to have a place to eat. I have Mm -hmm. about half a dozen international students who have nowhere to go if the dorms shut down. A lot of my students come from other states. How are they going to get back home? Their family Mm -hmm. is five states away in California, which is also on lockdown. So, yeah, and I haven't seen any moves like that from my university, but it's a great idea. And I think they should, if anyone out there is listening. (laughs) Our university for our international students and out of state students who were not able to go home. Once the residence halls were emptied out of Colorado kids, they consolidated. So they moved them all into one, into the building that has the dining hall. Mm -hmm. So they moved them all into that one building so that, they could still eat in the building. They could still live there. But every student got a single mm-hmm. because they mm-hmm. didn't want anyone living together. So oh. how that's how they solved that. Uh, lonely. Yeah. It's a solution, but not really, especially if you're halfway across the world from your family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. When we had our, our last our last class, they hadn't yet kicked everyone out of the dorms. 
I think that came last week. Um, and they did make special exceptions for anyone who reported that they couldn't go home to resident life. But I don't know what that yeah. looked like. I just know that they said if you have an issue with going home in any way, fill out this form. Well, let's take a quick break here. Let's come back in two and two and we'll continue this conversation. Need to satisfy a hungry mind? Every week, Your Brain on Facts brings you science. Why does mint feel cold? History. King Charles II of Spain was so inbred, his family didn't bother educating him. Music. Many hit songs and even entire albums were written for revenge. Technology. The first video game was made on an oscilloscope in 1958. And every other topic under the sun. Look for Your Brain on Facts on your favorite podcast app or at yourbrainonfacts.com. And we're back. So one of the things I did, which I wish I hadn't done, was I accepted a bunch of invitations to a bunch of pedagogical groups, a bunch of professor groups. And all it is is people complaining about having to do their jobs. Mm -hmm. And I can't deal with the amount of anger I have towards a large collection of faculty members across the country. (laughs) It's yeah. like a giant faculty meeting in a dysfunctional faculty. Yeah. It is. It's a giant faculty meeting in a dysfunctional department where everyone feels free to just air their grievances like it's Festivus. Yeah. And I like I don't have time for you to open the book of grudges and then go through every person who has wronged you. I'm trying to do something. And not only that, but I actually feel kind of positively about what we're doing for students. I actually feel like most of the time people are doing the best they can for students. And I don't have the energy to rail against the evils of the university system that's putting food in the mouth of my kid while I'm also dealing with trying to figure out how to deal with a global pandemic. I just, I can't do it. So if you're in one of those Facebook groups... More power to you, dear listener, but I have decided that I'm leaving all of those groups and I will only talk about pedagogical stuff. I will only talk about teaching of university content with university professors I know and respect. Can you, when I'm you not... leave, Chris, can you write a, like two paragraphs about how you're leaving and make it really explosively <laughs> dramatic and just be like, you all have let me down. <laughs> Do you know how many finales of Real Housewives I've watched? <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely can do that. And can you tag us yeah, in the comments? <laughs> sure. <sighs> so we don't I'm going to have to absolutely. rejoin these groups just or to at see least, this rant. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. I think all, all Facebook groups go that way at some point. Chris, I mean, how many, how many action figure Facebook groups are we in where we have to listen to, I don't know, bud, but if you think that the Masterpiece Optimus yes. is better than the blah, blah, it's like, oh, God. <laughs> You are absolutely correct. The number of the number of times I've had to roll my <laughs> eyes because two dudes can't decide on whether or not the copyright date on the bottom of a foot counts <laughs> for whether or not a thing is authentic. Uh, and if you can replicate that in a knockoff and blah blah, like things that you would not believe grown men are arguing over. So if I can put up with that, I can, you know, certainly. <laughs> Certainly deal with some complaining professors. <laughs> At the same time, I feel the same way about those groups, but it's easy to pay attention to 
those ridiculous things. But the, the truth is they've actually been kind of helpful. Mm -hmm. Some of the actual like questions and advice that people have been sharing. So it's just like social media in general, you know, you, there's going to be, whenever you get people together who are talking without the consequences of someone being able to punch mm. them in the face, they're going <laughs> to be awful, but there's still a lot of good stuff that comes out of it at the same time. Mm-hmm. So I'm still in those groups. But <laughs> I'm still in, I just but I'm just responding in gifts now. <laughs> oh, there you go. I support that. Always a great strategy. <laughs> I'm still in, but much like I would do if, say, I was invited to a party, I'm just standing in the corner silently judging everyone. Ooh. <laughs> Which is well, pretty that's much kind of my what Facebook is for. Yeah. Right? It's pretty much my way of being in the world is you know, and then I always love the people who are like, You can't judge me, only God can judge me. And I'm like, You don't understand how being judgmental works. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> <laughs> you don't understand how being human works. <laughs> I'm, um, I'm going to go ahead and judge that comment uh, <laughs> along with everything else I was already judging. Yep. So <laughs> I think I think we're probably at that point that we always get to on this podcast, which is at the end of the day, this brand new frontier of online popular culture education. So what? I think for me, at the end of the day, we are in a situation that nobody asked for. But if we can live in that situation that nobody asked for and acknowledge that nobody asked for it and acknowledge all of the things that make it terrible, we can start to pull out of it the real humanity and center that and center the empathy and center the the people that are involved in this process. Even though we can't see each other in the face-to-face way that we're used to, we can still center the, the feelings, the intangibles that really make this stuff work. And if we can do that, then we can strengthen not just these classes, but the next classes that we do in person. Yes, they said it perfectly. The humanity, the community, those things, I think, and because we're all so good at meta-analysis because of what we do, I think that we can take the good that there there has there's going to be some good stuff that comes out of this and i it's making us think a little harder about how we do this pedagogy thing that we do and i think that that at least will end up being a positive for me i'm also getting better at you know technology uh and certain technologies but i think this is making me at least think harder about this teaching project that I'm involved in. And I think that that is going to end up being a good thing, but also thinking more about that. Yeah. Humanity piece and the the community piece and how that gets put together. Things that I usually take for granted when I'm standing in the room with them. I don't know if I have anything to add to those wonderful statements, except yes, all of that. And yeah, anything else I can say is just going to be repeating that. So I'm just going to leave it there. That's fair. The only thing I would say is, in addition to all of that, which I also agree with, is I was very much in the, I have tenure and I've been doing this for 10 years whole. And this has forced me out of that hole where even though I think I am regularly a really effective professor. I think my my students would also attest to that for the most part. Even the ones who don't like me always sort of begrudgingly say, 
but yeah, at least he knows his stuff. This has forced me into a into a place where I haven't been since probably my first or second year of teaching, which is the innovation part. The there this is a new thing, so what can I do that's new? You know? I've fallen into that trap of like, here's the stuff that always works. It works every single year. So I can always do this stuff and students will always learn. And now I'm like, well, I can't do a bunch of that stuff. So what stuff can I do instead? And I think that's a really positive space. I think that's a real, a lot of people are complaining about that. But for me, that's the part that's exciting about this mm-hmm. is the part where I get to actually think about how I teach and what kinds of things I can do to help students learn. And I think that's great. Word. No, I wanted to say that how nice it is just on a personal level to talk to y'all about all this stuff because it's just nice to hear from other people who are going through the same stuff I am and thinking about the same things I am. I totally second that. Yeah. And I certainly appreciate talking about this with all of you too. But we have reached the end of the road, so to speak. So I want to thank you, dear listener, for returning to us here on the Deconstruction Workers podcast. We are back on our regular schedule, so you will get new episodes from us every two weeks from now on. And I have a full lineup for you this year. Uh, And so we'll figure out what that actually looks like as coronavirus pressures move in on us or hopefully at some point move away from us. But at least for the next few months, we're going to get a lot of roundtables. So we're going to get a lot of our scholars in one place to talk about stuff, which I think will be really fun for you as listeners to hear from such a wide range of different disciplines at the same time, different kinds of universities, structures at the same time, and so on. So for my deconstruction workers, comrades here for Natalie Shepard Bodine and Shannon Sindorf and Jonathan Alexandratos and Jen Zuko. I am Dr. Christopher Bell. We have been the deconstruction workers. Thank you, my colleagues, for hanging in with me this afternoon. Thank you, Thank Chris. You. Thank you. And we will be back very soon. Stay safe. Wash your hands. <laughs> The Deconstruction Workers Podcast is produced and directed by me, Dr. Christopher Bell. If you like what you hear, the best thing you can do for the podcast is give us a review wherever you get your podcast fix. Even better, become a sponsor of the show at patreon.com slash podcastdcw. Check out thedeconstructionworkers.com or follow us at facebook.com slash thedeconstructionworkers or on Instagram at deconstructionworkers. This podcast is recorded on the beautiful University of Colorado, Colorado Springs campus, 6,033 feet above sea level. The theme song for the Deconstruction Workers podcast was composed by Raphael Crux. As always, thank you for supporting alternate scholarship and academic public engagement. The Deconstruction Workers podcast is copyright 2020, all rights reserved.